Amen. Thanks, Ev. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Good to see you. Hey, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, all right? And Evan kind of already talked about this a little bit, um, but I'm going to do it too. A little secret about uh, pastors, at least most of them that I know, including me. Uh, And that's this, that a lot of times on Sunday mornings, during the time of worship, there's a temptation in our heart. And that temptation is to stay back there and kind of pray and read over our sermon notes because we're about to come speak to you for 30 minutes. And that still puts a little butterflies in our stomach, all right? And so I wrestle with that. Um, And this morning I was wrestling with that, but I said, you know, I think what I need more than anything is to be with the church and to sing. And when you guys sing as loud as you do, it settles my heart and tells me God is here. And if that does that for my heart, I can't imagine. I mean, for all of us, it's got to do that. And just no matter what you're coming in with this morning, if it's man, you're just, it's been a heavy week, it's been a frustrating week, or if you're just anything going on and your brothers and sisters are getting after it during the songs, man, it just settles you and says, God is here, I'm glad I'm here. So thank you for ministering to my soul this morning. I, I really appreciate it. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to First uh, Thessalonians. Um, we have been in a sermon series studying through that book, and we're gonna be uh, starting chapter four together. So if you've missed any of those sermons, I really encourage you to uh, go back and listen to those. Evan got us through chapter 3 last week, and we'll be in chapter 4 together uh, this morning. So I want you to imagine something with me as we get started, just a little thought exercise. Imagine you have a child that you're sending off to college. All right, many of you have done that before. I haven't yet. I fear the day. But I'll say you have a child that you're sending off to college. So they're in college, they're doing their thing, and you have another child that's going to go visit them to see how they're doing. I did this for my brother. My older brother was in college, and I went to go visit him while still in high school to kind of see what the college thing was all about. So let's say that your other child's going to visit. So they're observing how they're living their new college lifestyle. And so they come back to your house after their visit, and you naturally go, hey, tell me how it's going. And they go, man, they're doing great. You know, they're excelling in their classes. Uh, They go to class. Um, You know, they have a great reputation on campus. Like, people speak so highly of him or her. You know, that, like what, if they're on a sports team, man, they're just doing really well on the sports team or whatever activities they're doing. They just seem to be really excelling there. And you're like, man, that's so good to hear. And then they go, but hold on. There's one thing, and that's they are kind of partying a lot. You would kind of be like, ooh, like was so excited to hear those few first things but I've got some concerns about that last thing that I just heard. So you're going to call them up, check in too. Be like, hey, thanks so much for hosting your little brother, little sister, and and, uh, to show them the college life. And and what are you going to say next? Is it going to be, and they told me about the partying. I want to know more about that. Or is it going to be, 
man, they told me how well you're doing, how you're excelling in your classes, how you've got a great reputation and you've made great friends and people speak so highly of you. I'm so proud of you. Like, what are you going to lead with in that conversation? The reason why I have us do that thought exercise is because in 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of what's going on. So Paul, we've been through it, so if you've missed the previous sermons, go and you'll get all the history of the letter. But Paul's writing this letter to a church that he planted in Thessalonica. And as he was on his church plant journey, he got very concerned for the Thessalonians because there's just lots of persecution going on there. And so he sends Timothy up to Thessalonica to check on them. How are they doing? Do they even exist still? Like, what's going on up there in Thessalonica? And so Timothy comes back with a report to Paul, and the report is so good. It's, they're thriving. They're following Jesus. They're doing great. They've got a great reputation amongst the entire region. Like, people speak so highly of them. Their faith is literally reverberating throughout all of Macedonia, is what Timothy reports to Paul. But Timothy had some other reports, too. Starting in chapter 4, we're going to start to deal with a couple of things, right? One of them was, we'll get to it in a minute, but sexual immorality. Another one was brotherly love. And also some doctrinal questions, especially about the end times that the Thessalonians had. So in this report that Timothy gave to Paul, he gives them all of this great stuff and then says, hey, there's a couple of issues in the church that we need to deal with. And starting in chapter four is when we're gonna start to deal with those issues. But before we get there, I just want you to see what Paul leads with for the first three chapters. If you've been with us, and you've been going through these first three chapters, what has he led with? I'm so proud of you. I'm so thankful for you. I'm amazed at the faith that you have. I'm amazed at your maturity. I'm amazed at the reports that we're receiving from surrounding churches and other regions saying how strong your faith it is. I mean, uh, your faith is. As uh, Evan preached last week in chapter three, where Paul literally says, you are my crown. You are my joy. He leads with this reality that they are faithful followers of Jesus. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he's going to pivot over to some things that he needs to teach them on, maybe do some rebuking and admonishment on, correction on, but he doesn't lead with that. Isn't that interesting? And before we even get started in chapter 4, I just want us to look at Paul's example because this is an example of how God looks upon you if you have placed your trust in Jesus. Because if you have placed your trust in Jesus, God has put his spirit inside of you. You have been given the righteousness of Jesus. You have been forgiven of your sin. And your Father in heaven looks upon you and is proud of you, thankful for you. He, he's joyful that you're a part of his family. His attitude is not one of, let's start with this. I wish you'd get your act together. And maybe that's just the thing right there that some of you need to leave here with. 
is that image of God and his grace and his mercy upon you, that he loves you, he cares for you, he's proud of you, and that's his starting place when he looks upon you. That's what Paul leads with, and that's an example for us. But as we jump into chapter four together today, we're gonna be learning about why holiness matters. Why it matters that we are people who follow God's word and live according to the ways that God has instructed us to live. We're going to be talking about why obedience to God's commands matters and why it's a part of our faith. And that's where Paul's going to pivot to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible... Let's read just a few verses together. We'll, we'll do verses 1 to 8 uh, this morning, but let's just start with verses 1 to 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 3. Paul says, finally then, brothers and sisters. So he's pivoting, all right, his message, all right? He's going to now a new part of his letter to address some things. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul's saying, hey, when we were there planting the church, we taught you, according to God's word, how you ought to live. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. All right, so we, we see from there that there are ways in which they are doing that. And then there's going to be a few ways that they are not. And Paul's going to address those. But both exist at the same time, right? Okay, so keep going that you do so more and more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God Your sanctification, it's a big word. If you ever wanted to know what God's will is for your life, you just got it in chapter four. If you ever thought to yourself, I wish that God would just have a verse that says, this is the will of God for your life. It's right here, your sanctification. Now that's a really big word. What does that mean? Sanctification. Sanctification is the process through which God is growing you in holiness. Let me say that again. This is sanctification. Sanctification is the process through which God is growing you and me in holiness. And so this word holiness, what I mean by that is growing us in living according to God's ways and and not our ways living according to God's ways and not the ways of the world. This is God's will for your life. So when you study scripture, what we learn when it comes to our relationship with God is that when we come to faith in Jesus, two things happen. All right, in theological circles, we call that justification and sanctification, this big word that Paul just used. Justification is this idea that when we place our trust in Jesus, his righteousness is counted towards us, our sin is nailed to the cross and forgiven forever, and we stand justified in the sight of God. 
We stand right before him, no longer under his judgment, but now in his love as our Father, we are now a part of the family of God. We've been justified through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But the Bible always teaches us that when we are justified, the process of sanctification starts. And that those who are justified will be sanctified. Like in the Bible, there's no category for You can be justified, but never enter the process of sanctification or never see growth in your life over time in your holiness and godliness and obedience to his word. If you go to Romans chapter eight, it tells us this. It will very clearly outline justification for you that God has done for you what we could not do. And then he immediately goes in this reality that then he puts his spirit inside of you and that spirit is going to lead you to live differently over time. Galatians chapter five is gonna teach the exact same thing, that God's gonna put his spirit in you and we are called to keep in step with the spirit as the spirit leads us to live a different life. And the reason why I'm spending some time on this is because the order matters. It is not that you are sanctified and then you're justified. It is that you are justified, then the process of sanctification will start. And that order matters. Because if God requires us to be sanctified first, then that means we are saved by our works. And the order teaches us something about God's motivation behind telling us how to live. Have you ever asked that question? Like, why does God tell me how to live? Like, what's his motivation? What's his reason? Why does he care? There's lots of answers to that question. But one of the things that I want us to see is that if it was sanctification first, grow in obedience first, prove that you have the stuff first, and then you'll be saved, then what we know is that God's motivation would be power and authority. Now, we know God is all-powerful. We know that he has all authority. But when you think about it, if it's justification first, through Christ, he's going to come down to us and do everything that needs to be done for us to be saved. And all that's required of us is to place our trust in him. If that comes first and then God grows us in sanctification, then we know that God's motivation is love. That he wants us to experience life to the fullest. He wants us to experience life in joy, living according to his ways. That is his motivation, that he loves us. And so the question that we have this morning is, how do we grow in this sanctification process? How do we join God in that work, in growing in holiness and obedience? Let's read the rest of our passage together. So verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We'll come back to that. That each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness, in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives this Holy Spirit to you. Real quick, just look at those last two verses, verses seven to eight. We get this very clear instruction from Paul. God has called us to holiness, not to impurity. And that if we disregard this call to holiness, if we disregard the ways that God has called us to live, we're not disregarding man. I'm not disregarding a pastor. I'm not disregarding a church. I'm not disregarding, no, I'm I'm disregarding God. I'm rejecting his ways and how he has told me how to live. There is a theme in scripture. We already talked about it in Romans chapter eight and Galatians five, that as we live our life in Christ, in his process of sanctification and growth, as we live that, that there is a war going on. And the Bible is gonna call it a war between your flesh, your body, and the Spirit. Because when you come to Christ, God puts his Spirit in you, and then he says, keep in step with the Spirit. Follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That there is this war that is happening inside of us. And so here, here, here's what I wanna do. I want us to really spend some time in verses four and five. Because I think verse four and five in our text this morning is gonna help us to understand more about this war and what it means to grow in our holiness and obedience to Christ. So look at verses four and five with me real quick, where Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This word here, body, we get this Command that I want you to grow in your ability to control your own body. It's it's a really interesting phrase that Paul is using here. This word body is the Greek word skuos. And so normally when we see the word body in the New Testament, it would be the word soma, which is a much more holistic view of the body. But this word here, skuos, means literally vessel, container. Right, It's the stuff that holds us, all right? And so Paul is saying that we need to grow in our ability to control our body in holiness and honor and not be like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who basically their body is controlled by passion and lust. So what does that even mean? Let me try to frame this biblically. We got to start in the Bible, right? The beginning of the Bible, we read about creation. And God creates Adam and Eve. He creates man and woman. And he says, very good. It's good. And so one of the things that we know about mankind before the fall is that the desires of our body and the desires of God were in unison. But what happens in Genesis 3 is we get the fall. We reject God. And what happens is mankind takes on a sin nature. Something happens to our bodies. 
where now the desires of our bodies are now different than the desires of God. There's a delta, a difference between the desires of our body, what we want, and the desires of God, and what God wants for us. But God in his grace and mercy comes, he rescues us, he redeems us, he draws us into his family, and he starts this process of sanctification. And what is that? That process is the slow process of God changing and redeeming our hearts and our bodies so that we are more and more, the desires of our body are becoming more in one with the desires of God. Now, it's a progressive process. We actually read it earlier in verse 2 when Paul was basically saying, hey, or in verse 1, I believe, I urge you to keep on walking in the ways that we taught you how to walk just as you are doing, but keep doing it. You have been practicing this. We see the fruit of sanctification in your life, but there's more to go. And so keep following the Spirit as he's leading and challenging you to grow in your holiness, to see the desires of your body become more in unison with the desires of God. And so what he does here in verses four and five is he compares the motivation of the believer with the unbeliever, the Gentile. So the, the New Testament uses the word Gentile, just think unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Christ and therefore doesn't have the spirit of God working on this process of sanctification in them. And what he says is that the Gentiles... Their bodies are controlled by passion of lust. In other words, the desires of their body is what is primary. Who's to tell them? Who's to tell us what we should do, shouldn't do, what desires are good or bad, how to go after those desires? Who's to tell us that, right? That's, that's kind of what is controlling their body. But he's saying, but for believers in Christ, it should be something different. Holiness and honor is what he says. We should follow the Spirit because he's put the Spirit in us. And so what believers should have this worldview to go, okay, I have desires in my body that might be out of step with God's desires, but I'm going to recognize that. And I believe that the world around me doesn't have the answer to those desires. See, this is the primary difference, right? For those who don't know Christ, they feel longings and desires in their body. And what do they have to look to to find relief, satisfaction for the things that they want? They just have to look to the things of the world. That's the only thing available to them. But for followers of Jesus who have the Spirit, we have more than the world to look to to satisfy the longings of our body. We actually have God himself in his word and his kingdom that teach us something different. And so Paul is saying, don't be like the rest of the world in how they are controlled. But look to God. Trust that what God wants for you is better. Trust that God's motivation in giving you his word is love. Trust that God is actually after your joy and more committed to your joy than you are. 
Follow the Spirit in this process of allowing the desires of your body to more and more and more become unified with God's desire for you. Then he says in verse 6, He says that no one transgression wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. It's strong language. What what does Paul mean by that? Essentially what Paul is saying is, I think two things. Number one, if you're not in Christ and you're following after the passion of the lust of your body, that, that you are in sin before God and there will be judgment for that. That's the first thing that he's saying. But the second thing that he's saying too, and I think this is for the believer and the unbeliever, is that there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to ignoring or disregarding what God says in living according to the ways that we want to live. And the example that he's going to use here is Verse three, sexual immorality. My guess is that there were some reports of sexual immorality going on in this church, a report from Timothy. Now the word there for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's basically any sort of uh, uh, sexual activity or desire outside of God's sexual ethic, outside of God, what God has said we ought to live out within godly marriage. And so Paul is saying, listen, this is an example that I wanna bring before you. This is some of the report that I've heard from Timothy. And listen, yes, you have the desire. Yes, your body feels that. What does it look like to follow the spirit and allowing the desires of your body to become more in line with what God wants and not just to follow after the passion of the lust of your body because there are consequences to that. There are consequences to sexual immorality. It wrecks families. It damages your soul. It binds you to people and then rips you from them. It creates unbelievable relational hurts. It wrecks havoc on communities. There's natural consequences to living out the desires of our body and not seeking after what God wants for us. And Paul warns us of that in verse six. And so with that said, here's here's the place that I wanna go for us as we figure out what does this look like for us? I wanna give you a definition of obedience. I want to give you a definition of following after the Spirit. I want to give you a definition of what it looks like to grow in holiness and sanctification. And here's my definition according to 1 Thessalonians 4. It's this, having awareness of the difference between what I want and what God wants and trusting that what God wants it's better. Having awareness of what I want and what God wants, knowing the difference between those two, and trusting that what God wants is better. How do we do that? I have three questions I think we need to ask ourselves in order to live in obedience. 
Here's number one. First question I think we need to ask. What do I want? What does my body want? What does my body long for? That seems like such a simple question, but I don't think that's a question that we often ask and spend reflective time trying to answer honestly. It's really easy to kind of live through life reactively and to not stop and ask, what do I want? What is my body craving after? What are the longings that I have that I believe that if I see those longings be satisfied, then I'll have the joy that I'm after in life? What do I want? Am I aware of the ways that the desire of my body are different from God's desires for me, right? So, okay, just so many things that we could just, so many rabbit trails we could go down, right? What what does my body crave? My body craves financial freedom. My body craves success at work. My body craves sexual pleasure. My body craves easy relationships that don't frustrate me. My body craves peace and quiet. My body craves kids who are easy. My body craves an understanding spouse. My body craves to not be alone. My body craves to be alone. My body craves recognition that people would see what I'm doing. My body craves food, endless food with no consequences. My body craves alcohol or relief. Listen, not everything I listed and we could go on forever is bad. It's not the crave. It's not the desire that is destructive. It's the passion of lust to go get it in the world. To look to the world around me and say, the answer is here somewhere. And that will give me what I want. It's the belief that the world can provide my soul the relief that I'm after. So my question is, do we ever sit down with the journal and ask that question? What do I want? Okay, yeah, I, I want financial freedom. Why? Because Why? money is stressful. Because I think being able to buy these things would just make my life better. I don't know. Just start asking why, why, why. Just go deeper. Let's be a little more self-reflective. What do I want? Second question. What does God want? And again, that seems like such a simple question, but I wonder how often do we sit down with the journal and just just go, okay, God, what do you want? Specifically when it comes to me and my life and the things that I'm facing, what do you want from me, God? Because if we're not intentional to examine ourselves and have awareness about what I want, what my body's craving, then we're not going to be intentional at meditating on the things that God wants for me. Like, if I'm not being honest with question number one, how am I going to be honest with question two? With question number one, if I just keep it on the surface and answer the obvious stuff, then question two is going to be on the surface. What does God want? And I think a lot of times we just don't like the answer that we're going to that we're going to get from scripture. God, I want financial freedom. Well, God says, seek first his kingdom and I will take care of you. Oof. 
God, I want sexual pleasure. Well, God's word says flee sexual immorality. Turn away and run as fast as you can. God, I want recognition. God's word says it's vanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes. God, when I, want, I want relief from my anxiety. And he says, cast your cares on me. What does that mean? Do you have awareness of the delta, the difference between what you want and what God wants for you? And here's question three, because we have to follow that up. It's not just as easy as saying, okay, I'll cast my cares on you, God. Here's question number three. Who's gonna help you trust God? Who is going to help you and me trust God? It's easy to understand the difference, the delta between what I want and what God wants in my life, but trusting that what God wants is better is not something you can do alone. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I didn't take that from 1 Thessalonians 4. But 14 years of pastoral ministry and studying and teaching this book has proven to me that you can't do that alone. The pattern of 1 Thessalonians, why I wanted to really hit that in the beginning, the pattern of 1 Thessalonians, this idea that the starting place that God has with you if you are in Christ is he loves you, he's proud of you, he saved you, his righteousness is upon you, you're a part of his family, and nothing will separate you from his love. And then he begins to engage in, here's where we need to grow. Here's where that delta is between what you want and what God wants. And let's step into it by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Let's go into this process of sanctification. That order is the very thing that gives us permission as a church, as a body, as community, as brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other in following Jesus and living by God's word. Because this is what we do for one another. Our relationships are not anchored in our performance. Just like our relationship with God is not anchored in our performance. Our relationship with each other and our relationship with God is anchored in Christ. And so the gospel makes this last question, who's gonna help you? Follow Jesus. Who's going to help you trust God? The gospel makes that a feasible question for us to ask inside the church. Because Grace Hill, this is what we want for you. We want this to be a place where you can get the help that you need to follow Jesus and trust God with everything. If you're in our community groups right now, you know that we are going through a season of sharing with one another our stories and responding specifically to those stories with one another. Why are we taking time to do that? We're taking time to do that to create a context for you to be aware of for you and others of what you want, what God's wants, what's the delta between those things and creating a safe place for you to help each other trust God's word. That's why we're doing it. 
We want to be super reflective on question one so that question two can be reflective as well. And for too long, the church has been content with most things being off limits within our community, most people suffering silently, sin staying in the secret and wrecking relationships and families and people. No more. That's not God's will for you. It's not God's will for me. It's not God's will for his church. And we are attempting to build something different. Who is going to help you trust God? I challenge you this week to carve out time and ask these three questions of yourself. What do I want? What is my body craving? What what are the desires deep inside of me? What does God want for me in these things? Specifically, what does that look like? What are the scriptures where I see that? And who's going to help me with this? That third question is a hard question, but it is the very gift of the church. We ignore question three. Why are we here? Why are we a part of this body? Why is it worth your time? This is the very gift that God has given us. We do not have to go through this alone. We can help each other. Let's pray. God, so grateful for the gospel, this reality that our relationship with you is not anchored in performance. Our relationship with you, it's not anchored in our holiness. It's anchored in Christ the obedience of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. So thankful that the reason why you give us your word and you share with us how we ought to live, it's motivated by your love for us, your care of us, your desire that we would live joyful lives in obedience to you. So God, I pray that you'd protect us Protect us from the lie of legalism that says that our relationship with you is anchored in our performance. Protect us from the lie of individualism and shame that that tells us that our relationships with one another is anchored in performance. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the gift of your people, of your body, that You have called us to live our lives in a community with brothers and sisters and to help one another grow in our holiness, to help one another control the desires of our body, to help one another believe in the truth of the gospel, to spur one another on towards joy and holiness. God, help us to believe that it's when we live in holiness that we do experience the fullness of joy. So help us to pursue that. Help us to follow the leadership of your spirit. God, we need you. We're thankful for your word. Help us to trust it. Help us 
to help each other trust it. In Christ's name, amen.